ourselves and our righteousness versus choosing God and Christ's righteousness, when we choose our authority versus Christ's authority. So, with that said, typically I like to read through the passage to begin with, but this time I'm not going to do that. We're just going to read through the, a chunk of Scripture, and then we're going to talk about it. And then a chunk of Scripture, and then we're going to talk about it. A chunk of Scripture, talk about it, and then that should be uh, take us to about our time for this morning. So, with that said, uh, in life we often face many difficulties, right? Death, sin, Maybe theological difficulties where we don't understand exactly what God's Word is saying, so we don't know how to live in light of that. Maybe that's a difficulty. Maybe uh, many of us have emotional struggles, maybe things that we deal with daily. Maybe the same kind of emotional feeling, but it just shows itself in different situations. Uh, maybe we deal with sickness. Some things are decisions that we make that bring about difficulties in our lives. Sometimes it's factors that we have no control over that bring about difficulties on our life. Women, maybe some of your difficulties is having children or miscarriages or maybe it's a lazy husband. <laughs> uh, don't answer, you shouldn't have chuckled, ladies, if, uh, if you did. They're lazy husbands. Uh, men, maybe you have a bad boss or maybe your wife doesn't like to follow you or maybe you lost a job. These are all a variety of, of struggles and sicknesses and and, and I hope you don't go, well, he didn't say anything on my list, uh, so I must be good. Uh, think harder. There's probably something that fits your list uh, that I did not mention this morning. The question, though, comes in. We're all going to face these things. The question is, how do we navigate those? How do we navigate those situations? Now, I know the tendency in preaching is to give you five pragmatic steps on how to handle struggles. Pray more. Read your Bible more. Uh, talk to other people. Go to a counselor. And read good books. Uh, so there's your five steps. If you were looking for five steps, there's your five steps to a better life and, and read Joel Osteen's book while you're at it. Um, but I don't think that that's the Scripture's intent on five steps on how we deal with these things. Uh, and I don't think Scripture's intent is just to give us our best life now. Ultimately, Scripture's intent is to help us understand the character of God because then in the character of God, that's what brings forth transformation in our lives. It's not just how can we better help ourselves. And the bookstores are full of self-help books. And they don't work. They work for five weeks or maybe a year and then everything just crumbles apart again. It's because the answer is not there. The answer is ultimately God. So the question is how do we navigate these situations? And I think that comes down to the question we have to ask in navigating the questions and navigating life situations is... To what authority do we appeal to? To what authority do we appeal to? Do we turn to our own authority? Who do we turn to for freedom, guidance, and power? And I think the problem is that oftentimes in life situations, just in general, good and bad, we tend to turn to our authority. We tend to turn to our ability, our power, our rights, if you will, but primarily our authority in order to deal with the situation. Recently, it was interesting, I was dealing with the situation, and the person kept turning to their authority. They kept saying, well, this is, this is the way it is. Well, you just did something wrong. And I said, can you show me in Scripture where there was something done that was wrong or said that was wrong? And, and they just could not do it. Um, 
And, and the point is because they wanted to appeal to their authority, which ultimately in this situation, my best guess or discernment was it was their emotions. So I want to appeal to my emotions as the authority versus God's word as the authority. The person could only say, well, it's just not right. Well, where? How? Because I'm saying that it's, this is right because God's word says this, and I think it's very clear. So whose authority do we turn to in these uh, circumstances that are hard, that are, that are troubling? And I think if you read so far in Luke, as we've worked through chapters 1 through 5 and 1, 1 through 6, we see that Christ has already displayed an unusual authority. As a man walking on this earth, he has displayed an authority that's not been displayed to this extent thus far in God's Word and will continue to be compounded upon as Jesus lives out his life and ministry on this earth. So what we're going to talk about today is basically a number of different examples where Christ in the passage displays authority over something. And then our challenge then is to figure out how do we live then in light of Christ's character of having authority over that situation. So that's kind of where we're going this morning. So the first thing that we see in the first portion of this passage, we see Jesus having authority over sickness. Jesus having authority over sickness. Let me, let me say this to begin with kind of as a, uh, just kind of help us. Jesus proclaims, John 16, 9, that any sin that we have, so lack of hope in God all the way to murder and adultery, lack of finding fulfillment in God, all these sins are ultimately come down because we don't believe something true about who God is. Okay? So if you find yourself, whatever the sickness is or the struggle is, if you find yourself in despair, discouragement, lacking hope in God, it's because ultimately it's a sin, and that sin is something that you're not believing rightly about God. So in this point, I would, I would propose to you that if we struggle, particularly in sickness, like, like, like finding ourselves in despair, like in no hope, that's all of me because we don't believe probably that Jesus has authority over sickness. Now, having authority over sickness does not mean that he always heals, okay? We see that in the passage we talked about last, a uh, few weeks ago, chapters 3 and 4, that Jesus was healing, and then for the priority of teaching, he stopped healing to move on to another city. So clearly, Jesus' intent in his authority over sickness is not to always heal, but he still has authority over sickness. So if he doesn't, if his intent's not to always heal, then maybe his intent is to bring about some sort of change in our lives and the people around us through that sickness. And I think that's what we'll see as we work through this text. So John 7, verse 1 through 10. I'll read this a little rather quickly. He says, After he had finished all his sayings and the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. This is Jesus, clearly. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he went out to he sent to him elders of the Jews asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, "He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue." And Jesus went with them. 
When he was not far from the house, a centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at them. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. It's a cool story. So let's talk a little bit. The centurion. Let's talk about what, what is the centurion? This would have been uh, a leader, obviously, in, in the Roman uh, army. He uh, would have most likely, depending on the, the time frame, would have had uh, at least 100 men underneath his authority. Uh, he would have been leading. He would have also been in charge of kind of an area or a region. Uh, so like, it's not just, he didn't just go sit somewhere, but he was in charge of like the people in that area, both those who were Romans and, and the Jews that were Roman citizens as well. So it's interesting here, you see a Gentile having a very unique relationship with the Jews. Um, like this is not typical for that relationship to happen, but it would be somewhat typical for a centurion to have this kind of relationship with the Jews because he was in charge of leading them. So he couldn't just say, to heck with all you Jews. He had to have some sort of relationship with them. So this would have not been super uncommon, but it does show the uniqueness of the relationship and that it was to the extent that it was. And that, because what you see here is you see the centurion has a sick servant that's about to die, and clearly he loves this servant for whatever reason. We're not told in the text. But the centurion then sends the elders of the Jews. So this is a Gentile sending elders of the Jews to go get Jesus. So he had to have a great relationship. And then you hear the Jews say, this man is worthy of this Jesus. He has built, he's taken care of our people. He has built our synagogue. So this is a little bit on the background of the centurion. And his responsibility was essentially to lead these people. If you look at Luke chapter 7 verse 3, it says, When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal the servant. Again, he seemed to know and believe that Jesus could heal the servant that he loved. Notice that. So he sends it with expectations. It's not, hey, can you go get Jesus and see if you know, he might be able to heal my servant? It was send him to come heal. Send, sending them to say, Jesus, come and heal my servant. So there's clearly a, a faith here extra, being exercised by the centurion. Uh, you say, well, how would he have heard about Jesus? Probably when Jesus was in town doing various things. And then, what's interesting, if you follow again down the story, once he hears that Jesus is on his way, notice his response. Luke 7, verse 6 through 8. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come. And he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. I think what you need to notice here in the passage, is that we have a Gentile who is recognizing that Jesus has authority and power over sickness. I mean, this would be, un this is, I mean, this is Jesus, the Jew, 
Like the Gentiles had nothing to do with the Jewish faith. And he recognizes Jesus' power at this point over sickness particularly. Notice the faith that he has. He wasn't even a Jew. And then notice that the centurion here is understanding this authority. And I think that we struggle with understanding authority today. Like, we want everything to be on the same playing field, right? Like, we struggle with bosses. We struggle with people telling us what to do. We struggle with authority in marriage. Ultimately, it's because we don't understand God's authority in our lives. Like, there's never a point where we're not under someone's authority. And God has not designed it to be that way. It would not reflect even the Trinity. We want the authority structure to be flattened. Like, let me give you an example. There was a time uh, when even though your president would not be elected to office, you still respected his authority and had respect for him. But if you look at our society now, if your person doesn't get in there, they can do nothing right. And they can do nothing good. Now, I'm not saying that, and I don't want to get into a political speech here. That's not the purpose here. Um, but whether you voted him in or not, like, there's still, there was a day when there was still a respect. There was still an understanding of authority there. I think most, maybe most closely to home this hits is uh, how upset we get when we get a speeding ticket. Anybody get upset when you get a speeding ticket? Right? And we have a cop here, yeah. But, uh, I'd be, uh, the popos, you know cussing at him, like, come on. Uh, there is one sneaky one around here in Beaver Creek, though. I do have to say that. But uh, he got in heights, like right on 675. You can't even see it anyways. Uh, but like, he has that authority. And if we understand he has that authority, he's simply doing his job. He has authority. And we don't like this authority. But the, the centurion understood this authority. The centurion knew that Jesus acted, I'm sorry, the centurion knew that he acted with the full weight of the Roman government. Like he knew that above him was the Roman government. Like everything that he was doing, he had the support of the Roman government. He's saying, when I tell people to go, they go. And when I tell people to come, they come. When I tell them to do it. And he's saying, Jesus, I recognize your authority. Just say the word and it will happen. You don't need to even come here. Just say the word, and it will happen. The centurion, drawing from his experience, he's going, I, I know this kind of authority, and I recognize that you have this same kind of authority. And then what was Jesus' response? He found this amazing. It says he marveled at the faith of the centurion. Because the centurion was recognizing something amazing. Something different. Something unique. Why, I mean, who, who would you, if, if you understand the text and this culture and this time, who would you least expect to have faith in Jesus? It would be a military Gentile. And instead, he has faith. So I think what this does, it's not like, necessarily putting an emphasis on who it is, but it's putting an emphasis on the greatness of the authority because it's recognized by someone most least likely to recognize it. Surely a non-religious person would not recognize the authority that Jesus has over sickness. But the centurion does. 
So, here we see the faith of the centurion and the faith of his in the power and authority of Jesus. And considering who the centurion was, I think reminds us of the next point on your, on your paper there, that faith in Christ is a gift. So someone here, most least likely to see Jesus, shows us that faith in Christ is, is a gift. I think it's, see, see, the centurion is exercising faith in Christ and understand that he, he didn't have, he, like, he didn't grow up in the church and just accepted the belief in Jesus that his family had, right? Like, or he didn't have membership that he joined with his parents 40 years ago at some Baptist church that he doesn't even remember the name of. Like, that's not where his faith is coming from. His faith is so unlikely. I think we see here at least that it's a gift that only God that only the Spirit of God in connection with His Word can bring about in someone. I want to encourage us to not be so narrow focused, narrowly focused that all we look at is our daily struggles and we forget to look at the authority of God in those struggles. Like, we can get so focused, all we see is these struggles, but we forget that God is in authority over all of those struggles. And then we ask the question, how do we live in light of that? How should we live in light of that? Where should our hope come from? And understanding that 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 struggle came into place because it was part of God's plan. It was underneath His authority. It didn't just slip in. It didn't just surprise Him. And the fact that it's still there and you're still struggling with it is not a surprise to God. He's not going, well, I wish they would just figure this out today. We could move on. It's a part of His plan. He's in authority over that. Whether it lasts one day or it lasts 30 years, he's an authority over that. How do we live in light of that? And that's the question. How do you live in light of Christ's authority over sickness? And every truth that we discover in Scripture is how do, how do we live in light of that? So my question is, are you living as though Jesus has authority over the sickness in your life or the struggle in your life or the, or the trial in your life? Or are you living as though he is as weak and as frail as you? I think oftentimes we live as though Christ is just as weak and frail as we are. And oftentimes we think that we are the stronger one. Like I'm the one that needs to handle the situation. And I'm the one that's got this figured out. I'm the one that needs this and this is the plan for my life. And we forget that we don't have it figured out. That we don't know tomorrow better than God does. That we don't know the purpose of this struggle in our life. So we want to exercise authority and understand what we're saying. When we want to exercise authority and, 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 and power over our life situations, we're saying, God, your authority is not as good as mine. Understand what we're saying. The God of the universe, his authority is light years away and above our authority. Now, the nice exchange about that is that when we submit to his authority, that's the authority that we get, one who has the power to actually change your situation. The one who actually has the power to sustain you through. Because you don't. I don't. So Jesus has authority over sickness. We also next see that Jesus has authority over death. Luke 7, verse 11 through 17. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, 
And his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, and the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up, began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread through the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. I want you to understand the setting here a little bit. So just like we kind of explained the centurion, now let's talk about the widow. We had to understand the plight of the widow at this situation. Apart from a husband or a male relative, she would be in a desperate situation. The culture at this time, she couldn't just go out and get a job and take care of herself the rest of her life. And there was no life insurance. Like, no one's paying off the house. So without a male relative at this point, and I'm not saying that's, the text is not saying that's the way it's supposed to be. I'm just saying that that's the way it is in this culture. Is that without any male relative to take care of her, and, the, and Luke goes to great extent here, to proclaim that this is the only son of the woman and that she is a widow. So she has no one to take care of her outside of her son, and now her son has died. So for her, it is most likely death and at the very least scrounging and begging for crumbs in the streets of the city. This is the plight that the widow is in. And also, another thing to note is that during this time, the woman probably thought that God had no favor on her because of her situation. Oftentimes they viewed during this time that, that success and wealth and money and status was, was equivalent with God's blessing and favor on their lives. And poverty and sickness, and, and that was, was equivalent with God not having favor on their lives. Which I think we see is not true. There's scripture, but that would have most likely been her thought, but again, we don't know that for sure. What we do know is that the culture during this time, she was out of luck. And when Jesus saw her, he had compassion. He doesn't just experience an emotion of compassion, though. It leads him to action. He does something in response to that emotion. And Jesus touches the coffin, and then the text tells us that the procession stops. It halts. And he tells the dead man to sit up, and he sits up. I think the question is, how do, how do we deal with death? How do you deal with death? Are you complacent about it? Do you try to ignore it? I mean, how should Christians think about death? What's a biblical theology of death? How do we understand death? Now, I know many of us Christians are going to say, well, you know, for a believer, it's not the end of their life. You know, they've got heaven and, and so on and then hell, and, and, and um, th- that's true. But, but how should we view death just in and of itself? Not necessarily the results of death, but how do we view death? What is it the result of? Maybe it's the better, Christ- better question to ask. Yeah, it's the result of death. Death is wrong. Like, death was not God's plan, right? I mean, he created Adam and Eve to live forever. That was his plan. 
then death came as a result of their sin, spiritual death and physical death. So like, when we think of death in this life, this life, we need to understand that that was not God's intention. Now it's all underneath His authority, clearly, as Jesus exercises here. But we were not made in God's image to die like that. Jesus comes with a greater authority and overthrows death. And I want to make another comment here too. Understand that if Jesus touching this coffin during this time, the Jews would understand that as making him unclean. Like filthy. Like not sinful, but just unclean, and he'd have to go through a ceremonial washing and so forth. But you see Jesus going, look, I know that my cleanliness will overthrow the dirtiness of this situation. So him and his compassion leads him to do this. But you have to ask the question, is compassion of Jesus the point of the story? And, and I'm afraid, of, and I've heard a number of sermons where, that, okay, so this, this whole text is telling us how we need to be compassionate. Now, yes, we do need to be compassionate. I don't think that that's the main point of the passage. The main point is what the passage is revealing to us about Jesus, about God. And we see his compassion, but this is the thing we've got to understand. When, when God gives his gifts, his, he means for himself to be the focus of those gifts. So when Jesus gives the gift here of life, the focus is not on the compassion that he displayed. The focus is to be on him. What is he doing? What, is, what, is, what, is, what do we see displayed in who Jesus is? And we see here that he has this authority over death. So if you walk away going, oh, wait, we just need to be compassionate, and maybe particularly towards those who experience death. Well, that is true. We do need to be compassionate. Jesus displays that here. But how do we understand that death? Like, if our compassion is like covered in despair and uh, lack of hope, when we show compassion to the person who's experiencing death, if we don't understand the authority of Jesus over death displayed here, how are we going to be properly compassionate towards that person? Instead, oftentimes, what we do is we just perpetuate the lack of hope, the lack of guilt, or the hope in something else that ultimately will fail them. Like, so we go to someone who just experienced death, and we say, you know, it'll be okay. Well, why? Why will it be okay? Well, it'll be okay, you know, life goes on and, and we're here for you and so on and so forth. What about the day when you're not there for them? What about the day when their despair overtakes them? What about the day when their hope that everything's going to be okay runs out? But the authority, and the point is the authority of Jesus over death never runs out. This death, whether it was of grandma or it was of a one-year-old, is still underneath of God's authority. And that, if we understand the implications of that, should bring great hope to us. A hope that doesn't run out. A hope that sustains. I want to say this. All the needs, all these problems that we see here in Luke 7 are paths bringing us nearer to God paths bringing us nearer to God. All these needs, all these problems. 
I mean, th- so think about your life. Fear, unemployment, underemployment, sickness. They're all meant to be paths that lead us closer to God. And you say, why? Like, that stinks. Like, I'm, I'm getting ready to preach tonight on Galatians at another church in downtown uh, uh, Dayton at Refuge City. Some of you guys know where that's at. And I'm preaching on Galatians 4. Um, and in there, we, we talk about how the inheritance that we get as believers in Jesus, we get an inheritance. And as part of that inheritance is persecution and struggles and trials. Like, that's what we get. Why? Like, that doesn't seem like an inheritance. It's kind of like grandma or mom and dad dying and you getting all their debt. Like, why? Like, that doesn't seem like fun. I don't want to pay off their house. Like, I want to sell the house and make some money, right? Just kidding. If you lost a parent, I'm really sorry. Uh, recently, okay, just for the record, uh, that came out a little too quick, but most of you smiled, so, uh, all right, so, like, like, what, like, inheriting persecution, what, why, and I think this is, this, this is where we're going to go, all of these needs act as pathways to experience the power and sufficiency of God in our lives, one who is always alive, healthy, and in no need of friends or no need of, may not see their need for God. I like what a pastor named Mark Dever said. Uh, I posted this on Facebook this past week. May God grant us a limp so that we might lean on Him and find that He never fails. May God grant us a limp so that we may lean on Him and realize that He never fails. Jesus came to say that there is more to life than the minimal happiness that this world can offer. And we keep settling for the minimal happiness that this world offers us. And it's only when, here this is kind of, it's only when we are stripped of our independent, self-righteousness, all-sufficient lives that we realize all that we have in Christ. It's not a both and. When you realize how insufficient you are, you realize how sufficient He is. It's when, it's kind of like this. It's kind of like taking a crutch and walking with that crutch and that crutch being your self-righteousness. You trying to earn your way, your favor with God or depend on yourself to make it through that struggle or that trial in your life. When, if you would just give up your self-righteousness, you'd realize the freedom that you have in Christ and the power and the righteousness that He has for you, that He has paid for you already through Jesus Christ. So Jesus tells us the truth about who we are. We're not able And we're not able to do it. And we're not made as well for the simple, stupid things of this life. Like, do you understand how much little stuff we get concerned about? We're also being told the truth about our own sin. That God is right and good to punish us. But that God in His love has come in Jesus Christ. And He bears that penalty. Like, do you really want those passing comforts of this life over dwelling in God's pleasure forever? I mean, honestly, think that that's what we often choose. 
we choose dependence on ourselves or the comforts of this life that are temporary and so minimal and petty compared to the comforts and satisfaction and pleasure that we can have in God for all of eternity. So, we see Jesus has authority over death and sickness. And next we see that Jesus has authority over religion. Jesus has authority over religion. Luke chapter 7, verse 18 through 35. The disciples of John reported all, this is John the Baptist, okay? The disciples of John reported all, the, all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, or sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news and preach to them. Have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare the way before you. So Jesus, this is Jesus affirming, yes, John, it's me. And then he says, 28, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John, John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized in the, in the, with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. Note that, because we're going to come back to that. 31, to what then shall I compare the people of this generation, and what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. Verse 33, for John the Baptist had come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. There's so much to talk about there. That's a whole sermon in itself. We just don't have the time this morning. But here's a question. Why would John the Baptist be doubting who Jesus is? Why would he be wondering? Not necessarily doubting, but why is he wondering? Why is, huh, is this Jesus? And I don't think it says why, but I think from the text and the context, we can at the very least discern that John and his presentation is this presentation of judgment. Turn to God from your sin. And then we see Jesus doing something pretty substantially different. Like John, I think, is wondering, like, when's the winnowing fork? When is the, when is the division going to take place? When is God going to declare judgment? When is God going to set everything right? All I see is Jesus walking around healing people. Like, that's great, but when is the judgment going to come? That's what I think is, John, and, and, and honestly, it's, that's speculation, but I think, I think from the text, it, it allows at least good probability. Let's see what Jesus teaches John. I mean, John knew the Messianic prophecies. 
He knew what Jesus came to fulfill. And I think Jesus is teaching that he must first come as the Savior and then will come later as the judge. So the judgment just hasn't come in its fullness yet. Because if you notice, when Jesus was in the temple and he reads from the book of Isaiah, he leaves out, he reads Isaiah 61, and then he leaves out this phrase, and the day of vengeance of our God. I think Jesus Jesus is not ignoring that part. It was just it wasn't time for that. It was time for salvation to go forward. And you say, well, why? Because of God's graciousness. He could have came, sent Jesus, die on the cross, 20 people get saved, redeemed, go to heaven, show's over. But instead, in His graciousness, He gives us years and years, centuries, for people to come to faith in Christ. John's problem was that he was expecting too much too quickly. But the Pharisees' problem is that they neglected the ministry of John the Baptist and of Jesus. They completely neglected what what either of them was doing. Luke 7.29 says everyone was responding to John except for who? The religious people. The religious people. The churched people. Everyone except for them. Now what was, again, going back to John, what was he preaching? Repentance and baptism. Repentance and baptism. So what's this mean? That means that the religious people didn't repent. Obviously because they didn't see any need to repent. So they choose not to repent. Religious people are always the hardest to reach. These people know how to hear the word of God and just dismiss it. Or to let it run right on through their ears. And that's a big problem I think we see, particularly in American culture right now, is that so many people know just enough about God and the Bible that when they hear the truth, they can just let it go through one ear and right out the other. They know how to walk away dependent upon their righteousness instead of dependent upon God. And this is what happens with the Pharisees here. They heard the truth of John and of Jesus and just goes right on through and they know how to just dismiss it. They had not been baptized shows that they had not repented. And the the most religious people, if you notice the juxtaposition here in the text, the religious people are the exact opposite of the people that Jesus is making the greatest impact on. These people are missing out on everything. These people are experiencing the truth and the pleasure of God. And they don't need to repent. They opposed God through the stern message of John and the softer message of Jesus. They rejected God. Jesus was right to focus on Himself. God's plan was not judgment immediately, but instead time for salvation. The Jewish nation wanted a different Messiah. They wanted a different looking Messiah. They wanted a Messiah that was going to come and make all the physical things of this world right. We do the same thing. We want a different God who's going to make all the physical things right. We do the same thing. So that when God comes and says, I'm going to change your heart, you're like, I don't want anything to do with that because that isn't going to change my circumstances. But you're terribly mistaken. I mean, think about this. So Jesus heals the widow's son. What's going to happen to the widow? Her circumstances are going to change. Now, eventually that son would die again, but we want a different God. The Pharisees 
want a different God, ultimately because they were self-righteous. They thought they knew what was better. And self-righteousness will kill us. In these stories, we're seeing that Jesus is the change agent. All the actions are meant to point to who Jesus is. They're not mainly about what you should do with your sick friend or your dead relative. Or if you just have enough faith to take it to Jesus. No, they're mainly about Jesus and who he is. I heard a preacher say one time, well, your, your relative just got sick and died because you didn't have enough faith. Uh, that's just terrible theology. First of all, it just shows that he doesn't understand that it is God who grants faith. Romans 12, go read it. It's the measure of faith that he has apportioned us. Our faith is a gift from God. So, all these things, these are about God. They're, all these actions point to Jesus' identity. Jesus is the point of it all. And the Pharisees said, we don't want that. And the statement I think we can see from this is, do not let anything keep you from seeing the truth about Jesus. When we want our righteousness, we are blind to the righteousness of Jesus. When we want our way, our authority, we are blind to the authority of Christ. So, what gets in your way of seeing and living and believing the truth about Jesus? What gets in your way? Career, prejudices, pain, security, power, self-righteousness? How do you live in light of Jesus having authority over religion? Don't let self-righteousness creep in. And I think you'll be amazed if you begin to analyze and reflect on your life just how much you depend on your righteousness. If there is any point at which you don't feel worthy to enter into the presence of God and to commune with Him, to talk with Him, to pray with Him, it's because you're depending on your righteousness. You're saying, I haven't, I haven't read my Bible enough this week. Or I said a bad thought the other day. But Jesus never did that. And you only enter into the presence of God based upon what Jesus did, not what you did. So why are you still trying to lean on your justification, your self-righteousness, instead of Christ's? So, the next thing we see is that Jesus has authority over sin. Jesus has authority over sin. Luke 7, 36 through 50. Let's read these together. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table of the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair and her head and kissed his feet and and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee, who had invited him, saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering him, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. Jesus says, A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? 
I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began saying among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's think about this with me. Jesus would eat with the tax collectors, right? An outcast. Now Jesus is eating with a Pharisee. Now let's talk about kind of the setting here. The way they ate was typically like they'd be leaning on like this arm with their feet, like laying on their, kind of on their side with like a pillow probably right here and then the table would be right here. So they'd be laid and their feet would be out. So it's not like, it's not like the woman comes in kind of like a dog underneath your table and starts licking your toes. Like that's not what's going on here, okay? Like he's laying back like this and his feet would be away from the table. The other thing that we need to know is that it was common during this time for Pharisees to have like an open dinner. Like only certain people invited to sit around the table or to recline at the table, rather, lay at the table. Um, but there would be, it would be open to anybody to come. And the point was that they were going to have discussions. They were going to have theological discussions or discussions about God or about life. And people were allowed to gather around. So it would not be like you all coming over, you know, two of you coming to dinner at my house, and all of a sudden some woman shows up and starts licking my toes or your toes. Like, that's not what's going on, okay? Like, this would have been common for the lady to be there and for her to then to start doing this is not, not out of, I just want to make sure we kind of understand the setting here. It's not, it's not weird. Like, this is, this is all right. Now, we know why she was coming. Uh, she was thankful to Jesus. Now, you can see that in the text. Apparently, she has discovered the potential of grace at the feet of Jesus. Now, not like physically at the feet of Jesus. You get the point. Like, she had a, at least known about the potential to experience grace in her life at the feet of Christ. So she brought an expensive jar of perfume. I'm sure you've heard this, that, that this jar of perfume was probably worth a, a, way, uh, a year's wage. I mean, this was not something that was cheap. It was a vial that typically when you broke, you would use like the whole thing. But I think what we have to focus in on here is the thoughts of Simon. And I think the thoughts of Simon are the most repulsive thing in this chapter and yet probably some of the most familiar words to many of us. Look at verse 39. Now when the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, I'm sorry, it was now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Now you can't tell me that you haven't judged someone this week as if you were in a place of moral perfection with God. As if God could not have said the same thing to you. See, our world is on this kick of don't judge me, right? And then they quote the, they 
take pull it completely out of context. The do not judge lest you be judged. And they don't go on to read the rest of that verse says. Oftentimes, what I've found is that the judgment that they don't want is the judgment that's being talked about here, not in those passages. The judgment that they don't want is the judgment that says, you're filthy and I'm better than you. That's wrong. That's what Simon's doing here. Now, the judgment of that's not right, that is wrong, and by the way, I'm just as messed up as you, like, so I'm not coming at it like this, like you're wrong, but I'm coming at it as this. This is wrong, you're wrong even, but I'm like this, I'm not better than you. What's going on here is Simon is saying, if Jesus knew what he was doing, if Jesus was who he says, this woman's filthy and I'm better than her. She's a sinner and I'm better than her. And I think for us, like most of us are probably not going to go around going, Dude, he's, he's an idiot, and I'm much better than him. But for us, it's going to probably be a little more subtle. It's going to be a little more deeply rooted in our heart, where we kind of look at that and go, hmm, I would never do that. Really. You would never do that. And we talk, to, we talk or think of that person as if God couldn't say the same thing about us. Simon saw her only in her sin, with no thoughts of grace, mercy, or forgiveness. And worse, to think of himself not as a sinner. And and Jesus, notice, immediately goes to something that Simon would understand, money and repayments. Physical, like money and repayments, something that was owed. Jesus compares someone with a large loan and someone with a larger loan. Neither can pay, then both loans are forgiven. And then he asks the question, who is going to love more? Simon gets it right. He says the one who's forgiven the greater debt. Then, think about what Jesus does. Jesus then goes on in 44 through 36 to give the differences between his actions and the woman's actions. So he said, who's going to, right, the one with the greater debt that's been forgiven is going to, is going to love more. Then he goes in to, to show the actions of the woman versus uh, Simon. And said the sinner shows him all the normal courtesies that should be given to someone, as where Simon doesn't show any of those common courtesies that would have been given to Christ. Look at 744-46 with me. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered the house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Maybe because Simon had sinned so little, he had been forgiven so little, so that is why he loved so little. But notice the story does not focus on Simon, it focuses on the woman. Even when the public is putting Jesus down, he continues to talk to the woman. Notice what he the, the public is not liking what Jesus is saying. But what's he do? He begins to talk to the woman. He says, what? Your faith has saved you. Not your love has saved you. Not your good deeds have saved you. Not your washing my feet has saved you. But your faith in me has saved you. And then in focusing on this woman, it focuses back on Jesus. Because who's the one that's doing the forgiving? It's Jesus. And here we learn about love and forgiveness. Look at verse 15. He said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. 
Notice how he earlier commented on the faith of the centurion. It was his faith that marveled Jesus. And again, it's the faith that saved us. So Jesus has authority over sin. But I thought only God has authority over sin. And that's kind of the quantum that's going on right here is, is well, who is this? He has authority even over sin. Who has authority to forgive? And Jesus at this point is claiming to be God. He's saying you're forgiven. You're forgiven. The only one getting forgive of sins is God. And Jesus says your sins are forgiven. Why is God the only one that has authority over sin? Like, oh, why, sorry, why is it that God is the only one that has the ability or the authority to forgive of sin? It's because God is the one who's always the most offended one in the, the sin. And I don't think we realize that. Like, we want people to, to say they're sorry to us for something that they've offended, and then we forget that the one that's been offended as they offended us is God. Ultimately, we may be offended as well, and that needs to be repented for as well, but ultimately, the offense has been against God. Right? An infinitely holy God, any kind of sin then is an infinitely great sin against an infinitely holy God. And as we understand, God is the one that's most offended in our sins. Anything done by you or against you is more importantly done against God. Anything sinful, that is. When we sin, God must be the ultimate forgiver. Jesus here forgives her sins, claiming to be God. Let me make a couple quick comments. We're almost done. Um, Simon, at this point, shows very little love to God. And then we ask the question, well, why does he show very little love to Jesus specifically here? And Jesus says, well, because he had experienced so little love himself. I mean, that's the point of the passage, or the point of at least that part of the passage. Now, why had he experienced so little love or forgiveness from God? Because he didn't think he needed it. He didn't think he needed the forgiveness. So let's think about that in our lives. If we think we are righteous on our own, how much forgiveness, righteousness, are we going to receive from God? We don't think we need it. So then how much forgiveness are you going to then display to other people? Very little. You see the chain of events in our self-righteousness. Our self-justification, thinking that we've got it figured out, thinking that we are righteous on our own, that we can somehow earn our way into God's presence. So, like, I'll give you an example. And this is particularly for men. Men tend to be very uh, merciless. Like, we tend to not want to show mercy. You know why, men, that is most often, I'm convinced, that we do not show mercy? It's because we've not experienced great mercy from God. Well, why have we not experienced great mercy from God? Because we don't think we need it. We think we got it. That I've got my life together. And I don't need the mercy of God. We need, men, the mercy of God. Even that very example shows our need for the mercy of God. And these life situations, you know, Trials and sickness and persecution stuff should be all seen as opportunities for God to take that crutch of our self-righteousness out and replace it with the righteousness of Jesus. So how can we be this lady 
and not the self-righteous sinner? How can we be the lady and not Simon? They both were sinners, right? Jesus calls them both sinners. One who knew the truth and one who denied the truth. Our danger is that we are Simon most often. I mean, and this is even a warning for us. Like, a great warning. Because we come in and listen to a 70-minute sermon like every week. And, and we're like, you know, we, we got this Christian life together. And, ah. Hmm. We are likely candidates for this self-righteousness. We are here because we know that God has loved us in Christ. And if we will understand that we are the lady. We need to stare at the gospel daily to see our need and dependence for it. But here's the wonderful thing, right? If you've been redeemed by Christ, even though you've been acting self-righteous, you still get to walk into the presence of God fully accepted by Him. And then in that state of mind, in that joy and hope of being fully accepted by God, not because of anything you've done, but in spite of what you've done, but all because of what Jesus has done, then you can go to your Father and say, forgive me for depending on my righteousness. And thank you for granting me forgiveness. Not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus has done. That is a place to be tonight. I'm going to talk about this in Galatians. So if, if you're free to come, I'd encourage you to come. Our relationship with God, imagine this. Imagine in a romantic story, right? You guys ever seen like romantic comedies? I'm sure like ladies and that's kind of the mixture for men and women. You get a little bit of romance, a little bit of comedy for the men and then you're all both happy. What happens is you've got this couple and then there's this like little secret that like this little lie that they kind of know about but they don't want to actually handle. And you're like sitting there the whole movie saying, just talk about the problem and everything will be okay. Well, then what happens? The climax is, is they hear the, like, like the lie becomes like known, right? The, the truth becomes known. And then what happens? They break up, right? And then you're sitting there going, all hope is lost, right? You know what I'm talking about? Like if they would have just handled it, it would have been fine. And then what happens? They finally come back together. They talk about that thing that was a secret, that was a lie, that was like off to the side and they didn't want to deal with. And then they resolve it, and then they live, what, happily ever after, right? Now think about this. If you are trying to walk into the presence of God based upon your righteousness, your justification, your works, you can never know for sure whether or not you will have God's favor whether or not God will hear you, whether or not God will commune with you, whether or not God cares, ultimately. You have to wander, because there's that dirty secret, that, that lie of, of my justification. I will wonder every time I walk into the presence of God, is He really going to hear me? And then what happens? Is over time, you begin just to not go to God. Because it's too stressful, right? It's too, like the intimacy cannot be there. Because you, I don't know whether he's going to be okay with me today or not. And so we just eventually stop going. And then completely depending on our righteousness. But imagine if every time you walked into the presence of God, you knew that because of the perfect blood of Jesus Christ, that God was always going to accept you as his son. 
What kind of intimacy could you have with God then? What kind of relationship could you have with God then? But that's what he's talking about here. It's not about anything that we do. It's about what Jesus is doing. It's about what Jesus has done. God doesn't see you based upon all of your works. He sees you based upon Jesus' works. Now that's assuming you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. If you haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then it is all your works, and you're going to fail. It's not possible. And intimacy with God, and pleasures of God, and enjoying God forever, and having joy and hope and fulfillment and satisfaction, you're just going to find yourself empty time after time and time again. You will seek to find it. When this place fails, you'll seek to find it here. But what if we could walk with God knowing that even though I jacked up royally yesterday, He doesn't accept me based upon my works. And that doesn't mean we just go on sinning, right? Paul, may we go on sinning so that grace may abound? That's not the point. We still strive hard. We still work hard to be righteous and, and to work out our faith. But when it comes to our relationship with God, we know that that's just Him working through us and that our relationship with Him is not based upon our work, but based upon Jesus. And I hope that that encourages you as you work out this text and think about its application for your life. So I want to pray for us. We're going to sing one song of reflection and then we'll be dismissed after that. So uh, let me pray for us. I want to encourage you as I pray and as we sing, I want to encourage you to reflect on this passage and this word of God. Father, thank you for this time. Father, as the band comes forward, Father, I just pray that you would um, grant us redemption, grant us repentance, and then redemption. Father, we understand that even the recognition of sins in our life, of self-righteousness, is a gift of yours to us. And so, Father, I pray that at the very heart, our prayer would be to you this morning, asking you to reveal areas of our lives that is sinful, areas that um, is not righteous, or areas that we're depending upon our righteousness. And we understand that we're no better than the woman kissing Jesus' feet. We are the woman, ultimately. We stand at His feet. And we need His grace. And we need His mercy. So, Father, as we sing these words, I just pray that you would Help us to understand that, to see that, to love that, to live that, and to know that in all these things, that Father, you have authority over it all, sickness, death, sin, and religion. And Father, I thank you. Father, be with us as we sing uh, in these next few moments, and it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. You guys stand with us.